This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. You know, it can never be understated that God, I think, has a sense of humor. Not a maniacal sense of humor by any means, that he laughs at us when we make plans, but but more that God's plans are often bigger and better than our own plans, and that the things that he has in store for us are often more perfect than any we could come up with for ourselves. This series for Ave Explorers is really a perfect snapshot of that. We are going to begin this new series, series three, exploring art and architecture in the life of the church. And I, I don't think that this topic is, is more perfect than for right now, a moment when many of us miss our churches, a moment when many of us could use a, a bit of an escape, a moment when we want to think of things other than flattening curves and, and virus protection and wearing masks and how are we going to get our groceries delivered this week. But this series, I think, is dropping at a time that God always intended, a moment for us to think about and to discern our way through the beauty within the life of our church and how the beautiful things we have, the beautiful art that we contemplate, the, the magnificent churches in which we worship, how each one, every piece of art, every single church, truly leads us into a deeper contemplation of the goodness of God, that in a very real sense, the way of beauty is the way of the church, and that no one does beauty and art and architecture better than the Roman Catholic Church. That's what this new series launching for Ave Explorers is all about. How does this art give meaning to our faith? What does it teach us? How can we learn more about Jesus Christ? How can we grow closer to him by contemplating the beautiful things within the history and the life of the Roman Catholic Church? Why are churches built the way that they are? Why are, are certain modern-day contemporary artists working in this field? And, and how are historians unpacking what was once done in the past to make sense now in the future and today? I think this series is going to be one that you'll greatly enjoy. Again, not just because it'll provide us all a little bit of an escape from the current woes of the world, but maybe in a, another sense will help us all appreciate more the stuff of our faith, the things we see, the things we have, the places we go, and the reason beauty is what it is and works in the way that it does. Today, our first guest on this show is someone who I think has learned this in his own life of faith, his, his wandering journey from Protestantism into Anglicanism, a brief period of atheism mixed in, and he'll talk about that. And now um, a converted Catholic working for Word on Fire as the culture editor, as someone who um, explores not only pop culture, but explores art and, and the moments of beauty that we have in our world today and how they illuminate what we know about our faith and, and how we can know it better. Andrew Pettiprin is someone I encountered first on Twitter, which is often how many of these interactions for our show have begun. I uh, read a piece that he wrote about one of my favorite TV shows, The Good Place, on NBC. And he was talking about how this show teaches us something. 
I won't spoil it. The link to the article will be down in the show notes. And this is now what Andrew does, working for Word on Fire. And today we get to hear a bit of his story. We get to hear about his conversion. We get to hear about how the way of beauty is the way he walked into the faith. So without further ado, a little chat with Andrew Pettiprin on the way of beauty and how Word on Fire helps explore this mission in the world today. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us uh, here on the Ave Explorer show. Glad to be with you, Katie. Thank you. Yeah. So um, you're in your home office, I'm assuming, in Dallas, right? In Dallas, Texas. That's right. Yes. And, but you're from Tennessee, right? I'm actually from Florida. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But um, my family and I have been living in Tennessee for the last three years. And we actually just made the move uh, down to down to Dallas uh, for um, for my work. So yes. we're, we're newcomers here in the Lone Star State. Yeah, for sure. I fly through Dallas all the time. So I'm, I'm and I went to college there. So I'm a big fan of the place. Tell yeah. us a little bit about who you are, Florida to Tennessee, down to Texas. Your story is is pretty great. So just give us kind of the rundown. If I were to bump into you in an elevator and the elevator got stuck, what would I learn about you in that time that we'd have together? Sure. Well, I hope you'd hear some good news from me. Yeah. Um, I'm a lifelong Christian. I grew up evangelical in different Protestant denominations and churches. Um, then kind of went through an agnostic phase and became very, very interested in the life of the mind and intellectual pursuits and all that sort of thing. But then really came back to the faith strongly when I was living in England and I became an Anglican. And uh, that was more than 20 years ago now. Uh, but really uh, reconnected with my faith there and then... Um, served for about 10 years as a minister in, in the Anglican Communion in the Episcopal Church, and then um, a year and a half ago or so came into full communion with the Catholic Church with my family. So, um, you know, so it's been a long journey, and uh, it's, it's a blessed homecoming for us. And um, as Catholics, we're very, very interested in kind of um, how our faith uh, relates to the culture, in, in particular with uh, so many of the the big questions and issues that everybody's facing in the culture today. The faith is for our family, for me personally, just such a, such a home. I mean, such a place to, to, to belong uh, in the midst of everything else going on. Yeah. So that's a, that's a huge jump from yeah. all sorts of evangelical circles, which there's, you know, flavors of many. Um, and then to agnostic, not really believing, not really having faith. What was, what was that jump? What led you to, well, God's not important, and then maybe led you back into God is important? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was an agnostic, actually, I was obsessed with God. Oh, Obsessed wow. with God. Um, but I, uh, I, think, I think many agnostics are. I mean, I think that's really the thing, is they're just obsessed with the question of who is God? Wh what does he demand of me? What is the faith? You know, all of these sorts of things. So, for me, you know, I was sort of protesting too much, I think. I, I, uh, I could never shake the faith that I was raised with, but I, uh, I was especially concerned about kind of the intellectual feel of it. Mm. And, and, and a lot of it was my own arrogance as a teenager, feeling like I was smarter than people or like listening to a pastor use bad grammar or feeling like I knew better than he did about an interpretation of some passage. And I didn't, I didn't know better than anybody. Um, but I was very precocious and loved the life of the mind. And so for a time there, I felt like I needed to kind of distance myself from the evangelical faith that I had been raised with. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, then I, I ended up going kind of in the opposite direction and intellect, intellectualizing it all a bit too much and um, feeling like I could kind of be my own, well, for lack of a better word, my own pope, my own yeah. kind of judge of what was true and what was not true. 
And the wonderful thing that's happened to me over the last several years was just really being freed of that and, and just finding in the Catholic Church so much freedom and so much space um, to pursue intellectual things and things of the heart all together at the same time um, uh, in this, this large tent that we all can call home. Yeah, yeah. As Chesterton would say, the large playground um, that's yep. got a fence, right? There's boundaries, but there's there's you can go in so many different directions in pursuing that. So tell me about that then. The, the Anglican minister, you weren't just a pop into church on Sunday. I mean, you were running a, a community yeah. um, and then shift to Catholicism. What was the trigger? What was the moment? Obviously, for many converts, it's a, it's a lot of little moments. But um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, there were a lot of little moments. And even before I was ordained, ordained in the Episcopal Church, I had some real crisis moments where I, I had to kind of stop and think, is this right? Um, because I had been kind of dogged by the prospect of whether I was in the right church for mm-hmm. a long time, really almost since the time I became an Anglican. And uh, I remember I was living in England and then came back to the States. And it was right around that time that John Paul II died. Mm-hmm. And I watched his funeral and the election of Pope Benedict, and I was profoundly moved by all of that. Uh, but I still went ahead with going to theological college and, and training for ordination in the Episcopal Church. But that kind of stayed with me. And then once I got into ministry, I was so busy and just so overwhelmed with that and really loving it and enjoying it that a lot of those questions, they didn't go away, but they they changed in, in the way that they um, were running through my mind. Um, but then, I don't know, various things happened, and it was probably around 2015 that I really began praying and thinking very seriously and carefully about what the future would hold for me and for my family uh, in our church life. But then I got the opportunity to leave uh, parish ministry in Florida and to go up to Tennessee to serve on a bishop staff, to essentially be kind of like a vicar general for an mm-hmm. Episcopal diocese. And it was one of those things where I felt like, okay, Lord, if this is what you want, I, I felt like maybe I was going in a different direction, but I will, I'll give this a try and, and see how this goes. And it was a wonderful time in a lot of ways, but it was also where things really ramped up for me to, mm-hmm. to feel the call out of Anglicanism and into the full communion of the Catholic Church. So what were, um, what were those, those calls like? What were some of those triggers like for you? And sorry, if I cut it, we can edit all of this. My daughter just woke up down the hall, so she might come running in and just, let me text my husband real quick. She's sure. up. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. So, so you, you started to feel that call, that nudge. Um, maybe what, what was that like? What, what did you hear? What was God saying? Well, I like to say that for me, um, leaving behind the Episcopal Church and, and Anglicanism was not, um, I, you know, I had a lot of concerns about Anglicanism. I mean, I, I, was, I was sort of on the conservative side of things and the kind of this dwindling world of, of sort of a more conservative, more traditional minded mm-hmm. people in Anglicanism. And so there were times when I was really angry about the trajectory of, of our patch of, of, um, of the Christian world, but ultimately it was not anger and it was not a feeling of leaving that that consumed my thoughts and and um, inspired my heart it was really the opposite it was really this sense of the catholic church opening up with a welcome to me that i had not experienced before so for me it was much more about running towards something rather than running away from something Mm. and some of those moments included i just sort of by this weird happenstance ended up in this ecumenical reading group with um some nuns and a priest and a catholic layman um uh, and the nuns were these amazing Dominicans who just, you know, had just the hugest hearts in the world and also were the most intellectually savvy women I think I've ever met in my yeah. life. Um, so they really, really impacted me. And, um, 
I don't know, I think, you know, just a lot of other things like that. One big thing for me was I was writing a book, uh, which was called Truth Mattered, and it's, it's out, it's available. Uh, but I was writing it very much from kind of the C.S. Lewis perspective of writing a book for anyone who calls himself a Christian. Let's just kind of lay down some basic doctrinal commitments that we can all agree to. Um, and what I found as I was finishing up the book was I was just, it was just so, so absolutely clear to me that the Catholic church was the possessor in a sense of, of this truth. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's what finally kind of did me in. Yeah. So what was it like the first time you walked into a Catholic church? I mean, they yeah. don't look that different from Anglican churches, yeah. but there's some distinct differences. I was in England in the, um, fall and went to Stratford upon Avon and we walked in and, some of the iconography had been stripped off the wall. And of course there was no tabernacle in the back. And I, I turned to my English friend and I was like, was this Catholic church? And she said, yeah, the story of English Catholics is that so much of it was taken from us. And yeah. you kind of feel like there's this loss. So I imagine there were some feelings of um, this is where I belong. This looks very different. This is very beautiful. What was that feeling like? What was that experience like? I, it was especially weird for me because I belonged to a group of Anglicans that really believed we were Catholic. And I know that this is something that a lot of Catholics don't, don't get, and, and, and I kind of don't get anymore either, right, to, be, right. to be honest. But, you know, um, you know, we did have tabernacles, and we did wear mm-hmm. vestments, and we used incense, and we chanted. And I mean, that's how I ran. Very high church. Yeah, very high church, exactly. And, you know, we really believed that eventually, in kind of the, the, this full, you know, when, when the fullness of the ecumenical movement sort of came to fruition, that we would all one day kind of be back together and, and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe that's right. But, um, you know, I just really, um, came to believe that what the Lord was calling me to do was to, was to be in the fullness of, to, to enjoy all the gifts of full communion now. Uh, and I just, you know, strongly encourage my, my brothers who, and sisters who are still Anglicans to do the same, but, but yeah, but, but because we had staked such a claim to Catholicity as Mm -hmm. Anglicans, it was, it was kind of spooky to go into a real Catholic church where everything was extremely similar and yet to kind of feel like, Oh my gosh, I mean, I have been kind of calling myself a Catholic for a long time, but this is, this is the real thing. Yeah. Um, but with the, with the joys and the sorrows, with the, the beauty and the not so beauty and, you know, all these kinds of things all together, but to really begin to experience that um, was a little bit of a shock. Uh, so I would just kind of duck in, almost every day to a daily mass at just this very large suburban parish on, on my way to work, still in the mm-hmm. Episcopal church. And, um, you know, day after day, I would go there and eventually I started having some conversations and, uh, you know, the good thing was, and maybe it was just where I was living at the time in Nashville, but I knew, I got to know a lot of people, both clergy and lay people who are very serious Catholics who had been Anglicans themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they were very, very helpful including um, the, the priest who eventually received us and confirmed us in the Catholic Church, had grown up Episcopalian. He totally knew where we were coming from and was just a wonderful guide to kind of, you know, move us into this new world that we were yeah. experiencing. And it is. It is very much. A, my, my mom was raised Southern Baptist, and when she converted to Catholicism, I mean, I was obviously not alive yet, but we've had this conversation since because of the work that I do. I remember her telling me um, the first time she walked into the cathedral, she was like, there was just so much stuff to look at. Yeah, you know, because she grew up in a um, a community where it was pews and a wall and a podium, and that was it. So, like, maybe tell tell us a little. What were some of those those things that really captured your imagination? Um, whether it was a statue of Mary or even just yeah. like the ornateness, you weren't part of a high church that had these yeah. things. But there's a distinct Catholic flavor to our art and to the things we look at. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that the definitely statues of Mary, statues of Joseph, um, just the the sense of the the reality of the communion of the saints. You know, and again, I don't want to like disparage my past or the right. people who were who you know who are still there, but there really developed quickly in me this sense that it was real, that it was real in the Catholic Church, and you know that it wasn't playing pretend. It wasn't. It wasn't just like well, maybe it's a nice thing to do or something like that. It was like people really depend on Mary's prayers. People really depend on Joseph's prayers. Like their devotions are very spiritually rich. Mm-hmm. And so these statues and the stained glass and all of those kinds of things in a, in a fancy church, in a beautiful church are so important. But even in like a kind of big suburban church that is, that is a bit stripped down, you know, it's still there. That devotion, that piety yeah. is so real, is so palpable. And um, that's just something that I'm still getting used to and just still really enjoying. I sometimes like almost pinch myself that that is, is my tradition now. Yeah. That it's something that I get, I get to have without any apologies, without, without worrying that I'm seeming too Catholic, you know, right. as, a, as right. a Protestant, as an Anglican. Yeah, nobody will judge you for going to light that candle in front of the Mary no. statue, which, yeah. you know, in some sense, I think non-Catholics, they see us as almost superstitious. Um, but like... I know Catholics that will not leave the house without a rosary in their pocket or, yeah. or Catholics that, and almost, it's almost Jewish, will not walk into their home without putting holy water on their hand um, or how weird it feels walking to a church if, if the holy water might accidentally be empty or low. These yeah. things that, that, that trigger us into our memory of this collective experience that we have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's all a part of the fabric and it's all, and it's all, um, formative. It, mm-hmm. That's what shapes us. You know, that's the habitus, the habit of like all of these little things that we do devotionally are what form us in virtue. Yeah. And, you know, these are things that when I was a, a Protestant were sort of, you know, take them or leave them. They're fine, mm-hmm. you know, but they're not, they're not necessary. They're not necessary. They're not necessarily like good things or bad things or right. something like that. And in fact, you know, there was even a streak that uh, of, of piety that I had, you know, when I was much younger that would say, well, that stuff actually gets in the way right. of some kind right. of real relationship that's going on. Now I feel totally opposite, that all of that fabric is really what the relationship is all about in the same way that human relationships are. We do things for each other. We, we look at each other. We listen to each other. We touch each other. I mean, it's all, that's what relationship is. I hope you've been enjoying this conversation with Andrew Pettiprin. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, if you're liking this, then you can find more of our art and architecture content over on the Ave Maria Press website. You can sign up to receive all of the art and architecture series emails right to your inbox. We'll have the link down in the show notes. And you can journey with us over the next four weeks as we unpack and explore beauty and the buildings within our church. Uh, The content will begin on Wednesday, April 15th. We have articles from art historians, architects, artists that are working today, people who who help us unpack the richness of, um, of what we have in our church. So you can sign up at the link down in our show notes, and you will be part of the Ave Explorers family for this series on art and architecture. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, it's the sacramental worldview. Um, A professor of mine, Dr. Lowry, often said that you put on your Catholic glasses and you can never properly take them off unless you want to be blind, right? Like there's, you see, you begin to see the world from that Catholic lens. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Your work in Dallas, you know, you, you, you left Nashville. Yeah. um, 
And you arrived in Dallas, Texas to work for Word on Fire, but you have probably the coolest job title I've ever heard. Um, you are the fellow of popular culture. Um, what does that mean? What is your work? What is the mission of Word on Fire? We all know Word on Fire through Bishop Barron, but it's much bigger than just videos on YouTube. What, what, what are you doing down there? Yeah, well, what, what an incredible turn of events that I got to come work for Bishop Barron and come be a part of the Word on Fire Institute and the Word on Fire organization as a whole. I have been inspired by Bishop Barron and by the Word on Fire resources since, since way back, since he first started making YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. And I would watch him comment on films and that sort of thing and think, that's the kind of thing that I want to do. Because I have for my whole life been steeped in films and novels and, you know, music and all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I've never had a faith that could do without those things. Like I've never, right. you know, I've never sort of like been able to box myself into just a sort of like Christian label of media or, or mm -hmm. something like that when it comes to all these things that inspire me or the things that I engage with. So it was so refreshing to encounter Bishop Barron's stuff and to, um, and to see that that could be sort of lived out in such a faithful way. So I've long been a fan. I used some of Board on Fire's resources even when I was an Episcopal priest with my parishioners. So that was cool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I when I when I left the Episcopal Church, I really didn't have a clear path to what exactly it was I was going to do. I was pretty sure that I belonged among the laity, that I had a ministry um, to to serve now um, as a writer and as a teacher mm -hmm. and a speaker and all of that sort of thing. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to take shape. And so I had a job for a little while at the Diocese of Nashville mm. in the Faith Formation Office there. And that was such a blessing. And that was just an incredible time just to kind of get to know Catholic life a little bit and, and to have some good work to do to support my family for a little while. And then I made a few connections here and there. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was being offered this position to come down to Dallas and to serve uh, at Word on Fire. And what I get to do is really just kind of a dream job. I get to I get to watch movies and watch TV shows. I get to read things. I get to write about them. You know, it's still kind of the early days of my ministry there, but we have a lot of things planned as far as like teaching opportunities and video series and podcasts and all these kinds of things. And so it's really just a just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. But the thing that's exciting to me the most is just to be a part of this organization and just to be available to the organization and to the church as a whole in whatever way I'm needed. Yeah. And, you know, Word on Fire has these these principles that it operates under, and they're all just just they all just really, really resonate with me. They're very much rooted in um, in the kind of piety that John Paul II was all about, who, of course, is a huge inspiration for me. Um, it's rooted in some of the best kind of 20th century apologetics, like people that I that I love, like Chesterton and, and C.S. Lewis and people like that. But, you know, really meaning to kind of engage with the culture and offer the culture a place to call home. Yeah. And one of the most important principles of Word on Fire is lead with beauty, mm -hmm. which then speaks directly to the work that I do as the fellow of popular culture, where I get to kind of examine these things and point to them as places that people can, can look for inspiration to engage with the faith if they're not Christians or Catholics at all, or to deepen their faith or to deepen their devotion to our Lord um, in the church um, by engaging with them. So it's a real privilege and an honor that I get to do what I do now. Yeah, I was, um, I think in high school, maybe college when Bishop Barron did the Catholicism series, you know, Cradle Catholic. I, I remember having to watch it. I, I think it must've been college having to watch it for something and thinking, oh, I know this stuff. Like I'm Catholic. I've been Catholic my whole life. I'm getting my degree. Um, and then it was, I'd already been to Rome. Like I knew what St. Peter's looked like. I knew what he was talking about when he went to Lourdes, but yet at the same time, 
seeing it and hearing the story, there, there, there was this stirring of the heart because you were showing these beautiful things. And it's fascinating that your job gets to show those beautiful things through the things that we're surrounded by in the modern culture, which yeah. most of the time you hear the word modern and Catholicism and some people cringe and they're like, oh, that modern art stuff. But it's, it's much more than that. It's Parks and Rec has some Christian themes. The Good Place was talking yeah. about death in a really unique way i mean yeah. tell us a little bit about some of those projects you're hoping to tackle to really show that for people yeah if well, you can <laughs> well, yeah for sure well i mean one thing that i want to that i always want to be clear about is i'm not just like i'm not looking to like decode everything right. through right. the lens of like oh that's actually catholic or whatever mm-hmm. you know because clearly that that isn't the case and there are people who i think go a little bit too far in that direction right. sometimes and maybe i'm guilty of that a little bit too but there's no denying that if something is um if something has has truth in it, uh, that it's it's God's truth. I mean, yeah. that so something something there isn't a kind of there aren't different truths. Right, right. You know, so truth is truth. Yeah. yeah, truth is truth. So there are all kinds of things that are maybe accidentally um, inspiring someone towards mm. the faith or whatever. But in those cases, those are definitely the things I want to point to. Those are the things that I want to say. Hey, look at this. They don't mean to do this necessarily, but you know, we can compare this to something St. Augustine talks about or something that, you know, um, Benedict XVI talks about or whoever yeah. it may be, you know. Um, and that's where the beauty part is is connected, you know, the, this, the trifecta of beauty, truth, and goodness. Mm-hmm. And it was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was an, an Orthodox Christian, um, Nobel Prize winner, who uh, back in 1970 gave this great speech where he talked about this very thing. And this is something that's inspired me ever since I read it about 10 years ago, where he kind of laid out this, this idea. And this is a guy who was, you know, a, a political dissident in the Soviet Union amid all this like brutalist architecture and, you know, stuff that's really quite ugly, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who took Dostoevsky's statement, beauty will save the world, and elaborated on it and basically said, look, um, you know, the very things that we're saying here, all truth is God's truth. If something is beautiful, then it will necessarily have something true and good about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can kind of like live in a bunker and, and sort of, you know, push aside everything that isn't like explicitly Catholic or Christian, but I don't think that's really the best strategy. I mean, I think, you know, we have to live in the world. We have to um, engage with the world. And more than anything, we have a mission to the world. Yeah. And so we need to know what the world is doing and, and be able to identify those things where, where we can say we have common ground there. That's something yeah. that we share. Beauty is the on-ramp. I mean, it's yeah. the on-ramp for the work that we're doing. It's often, yeah. you know, the beautiful song or the, the profound piece of art that can capture an imagination. And the church, I mean, has a wealth of that. Do you, do you have like a particular Catholic piece of art or a Catholic hymn or maybe a particular Catholic church that, that really captures your imagination? That we're asking every guest this question, like kind of yeah. give us your favorites that sure. we can go look and see. Well, I definitely love um, medieval cathedrals and churches, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the opportunity to live in England for three years, which, of course, has this complicated history of having right. been Catholic and then Anglican, but still all these beautiful, wonderful old buildings where all of the kind of evidence of Catholicism is still kind of there and hard to stamp out. But um, a story that I've been, I've been talking about a lot more lately, and I'm writing about this right now, is the first time I went to Europe, I was 14 years old. My, it was a really weird time, a difficult time in my life. My parents had gotten divorced. My dad was living in Italy. Um, mm. He was a naval officer. And my sister and I went over there to visit him. And we spent the summer there. And it was a really weird time because we kind of didn't know our dad that well. And we, but we were there with him. 
And he did what he knew how to do. He just sort of took us in his car and drove us all around Europe. He wasn't Catholic, isn't Catholic, um, but he took us to the places where people go and where people go even now is right. to the famous Gothic cathedrals and medieval cathedrals and you know beautiful places of worship that are um, old and venerable. Mm -hmm. And so the very first cathedral, to my knowledge, that I was ever in in my entire life was the Cathedral of Reims in France. Um, so it's a weird place, R-E-I-M-S, Reims, not that far from, uh, from Paris. And mm -hmm. it's called Notre Dame, like Paris, but it's not the one in Paris. Right. But that's the first cathedral I ever went to. And it is an absolutely gorgeous cathedral. And it's a place that I think about a lot and dream about a lot. And it's a place that I think I had some seeds sown right then and there as a 14 year old yeah. uh, for imagining that the whole, the whole universe could in a sense be contained within this building inside yeah. these walls of stone. Why? Because Jesus himself was there present in the sacrament of the altar, even though I didn't know it at right. the time. Right. So that's a great cathedral that I love. Um, you know, there are so many places like that. I love medieval polyphony. I love, um, you know, beautiful um, sacred music. Mm -hmm. um, and of course I love all kinds of different visual arts. And, you know, to come back to the beauty thing, beauty is not the same thing necessarily as pretty, right? It's right. not the same thing as easy to look at. It can in times be really difficult. Mm -hmm. And this is something that people, um, I think, take for granted sometimes, that a crucifix, that our Lord dying on the cross can be extremely beautiful. And so yeah. there are all kinds of, like, you know, beautiful things like that that are also difficult that can really connect to us. So, you know, I love uh, Michelangelo's Pietà. I love, you know, so many um, classic examples of um, beautiful art like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's a great distinction to make for our listeners. It's not, beauty does not equal pretty because yeah. there are plenty of pretty things in this world that are, it, it's kind of the difference between happy and joy, right? Like joy is that sustained, even in the midst of, of pain, that's still there. Happy can be very fleeting and, and pretty can be very fleeting, but yet beauty always points us higher um, and leads us to a contemplation of something greater. And, and the church does this very well in many, many places and sometimes poorly in other places. But, yeah. um, you know, I think one of the, the most profound moments I've ever had in ministry was at the National Catholic Youth Conference. Not necessarily, it's a football stadium, not a beautiful room, um, but yet became beautiful as the Blessed Sacrament was exposed on a stage in front of 25,000 young people. And there was an action of beauty as young people began to kind of flood the floor and sit on the floor so that they could be closer. Major fire hazard. We should not have really allowed it to happen. <laughs> but yet the young people wanted to be closer. And it was, it was a visual, beautiful representation of how they were drawn to the monstrance, drawn to the Blessed Sacrament, drawn in by the, the music, which while contemporary worship was still objectively beautiful, yeah, I'll tell you another one for me. Yeah. This past summer, I went to Franciscan University at Steubenville for the yeah. first time. Yeah. And um, it was really wild for me because um, because of what you're saying. They, there was contemporary music and all, mm -hmm. a lot of the same kinds of things that in some respects I had rebelled against when I left evangelicalism, precisely because I felt like they weren't beautiful enough in certain respects or didn't kind of resonate deeply enough with all the riches of the past. Mm -hmm. But when I experienced it for the first time as a Catholic at Steubenville, when 
the, the priest is processing around with the Blessed Sacrament and people are literally reaching out their hands, crying, just, you know, devoted to the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it was, it bowled me over. And it was one of truly the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life, even though the means that that were used were in a, in a sense, like really surprising to me. They weren't yeah. a medieval cathedral. They weren't, you know, medieval polyphony. They weren't something like that. It was something very contemporary, very modern, but so clearly put to the use that the Lord wanted, wanted it. And it became so beautiful, yeah. so beautiful to me. I think that's a, you know, beauty can almost be surprising. We know it's there. Sometimes it, it shocks us and it, it wakes us up to this deeper reality. So here at the end, what would be your encouragement for Catholics who are listening to this, maybe non-Catholics who tune in because they know your name and, and they're curious, what was his story? Um, or they've read your book. We, you know, this person listening wants to engage more in the, the beauty of the church and the tradition of the church as far as the beautiful things that we have. How many times can we use the word beauty? But what would be your, your word of encouragement for that person? I mean, is it a matter of just starting to Google pretty churches or hop on a plane and go somewhere? Like, what's a way that we can try to incorporate this way of beauty into our, our daily life? Yeah, I would say, first of all, I would encourage people to let themselves be surprised. I actually think that sometimes you can make an idol out of what you think is beauty. And sometimes it can actually keep you away from the truth and from goodness. In some respects, I think that happened to me in my story that I, there may have been moments when I worried that modern Catholicism was a little bit too kind of contemporary feeling or something like that. And that's just been, that's just proved to be nonsense to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's just beautiful. <laughs> Every single parish church I go into, I have a beautiful experience and, you know, maybe that won't always absolutely happen, but, <laughs> um, but right now, absolutely. It is the case. And, mm. and that's just been a great, a great joy to discover. So, so be open to the work of grace to, to, to see that beauty. The other thing is, I think everyday beauty is a really, really important thing to strive for. Just little things every day in your life. And they can end up sounding, I don't know, a little bit, I don't know, a little bit silly or, um, you know, the kind of thing that can make you feel like proud over against people who don't care about these little things in their lives. But I actually think they kind of add up. Like if you, um, you know, if you take care of your shoes, if you, you know, um, if you decorate your room with special intentions, if you um, cook meals that are aesthetically pleasing and also contain wholesome ingredients, stuff like that. I actually think those things all add up towards sort of um, pursuing more and more and more the beauty that also smuggles into your life, the truth and goodness of God in the church. Yeah. So, you know, you, sometimes people don't, it, that doesn't resonate with people so well. They sort of think, well, you know, um, it, you shouldn't be worrying about wearing fancy shoes. You should, you know, go barefoot and give your money to the poor. Well, hey, I mean, that's some people's <laughs> vocation and I'm, I'm totally cool with that. On the other hand, most of us wear shoes. Most of us wear clothes. So why not, you know, focus on having a few decent things that we can yeah. take care of, you know, as a kind of statement towards, um, you know, good things that we believe um, yeah. all come from the Lord. I think that's a great perspective that the intentionality, right? Like yeah. beauty is surprising, but not accidental, and that intentionality is, is really important to be able to, to look for and to find it and to even share it with the world. Um, well, Andrew, where can people find you? Obviously, your work will be on Word on Fire, um, but where can we find out more about you and your work and, and your, your perspective on things? Sure. You can check out my website at andrewpettiprin.com. I'm on Twitter at andrewpettiprin, Instagram, um, try to be... Um, present on uh, the different social media but yeah definitely look for my work at word on fire and uh, and support what we do there awesome thank you so much for joining us we're, we're happy to have your voice here at the, the start of this new series thanks katie 
the way of beauty is often the way of faith, and I think this is something that Andrew really helped us explore and unpack here at the start of this new series on art and architecture. If you want to hear more from Andrew, of course, we have his work at Word on Fire and his website down in the show notes. Click on those to see more of what he's doing in the world. And if you want to um, access what we've created for this art and architecture series, please sign up so that you can get the weekly emails straight to your inbox starting on April the 15th. We'd be grateful for a rating and review of this Ave Explorers show. And um, if you could click subscribe so that you can get the shows updated right into your phone every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. This new series is one that we are very excited about, and we can't wait to journey with you to explore the way of beauty and how art and architecture enhances and expands our faith. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>